0: Christmas season is upon us and it is the most wonderful time of the year, unless you work at Walmart. (laughs) Now, despite the fact Christmas is meant to celebrate Jesus, the commercialization of Christmas makes it easy for Jesus to get lost in all that's going on this time of the year. And when Jesus is lost in Christmas, culture is quick to offer two replacements, The first is reckless consumerism. During the season, we are encouraged to spend, spend, spend. It's almost as if we're challenged to outdo ourselves in our spending every year. And some people take this challenge very seriously. Every year, all manner of people, uh, through reckless consumerism, they spend their way into greater debt, into financial disaster. We are really culturally conditioned to spend beyond our means at this time of the year that the second alternative culture offers is Christless spiritualism. This time of the year, there are all kinds of feel-good movies come out talking about the goodness of man, peace on earth, goodwill toward man, and miracles happening at the time of Christmas. According to the movies, the nameless spirit of Christmas does all kinds of amazing miracles this time of the year. Now, as disciples of Jesus, we know reckless consumerism is what the Bible calls covetousness. And tells us covetousness is nothing but idolatry. We also know the reason there is peace on earth and goodwill toward man this type of year is because of Jesus. Yet despite the fact we know this, it's easy for us to get caught up in the attitude of the world around us because it is everywhere. To help us fight this these attitudes this year, we're going to start a series called Advent. Advent is derived from the Latin word adventus, which means coming. The Advent season is a time of preparation. During Advent, we direct our hearts and minds and our hopes to the second coming of Jesus by thinking deeply about the first coming of Jesus. I thought this was a fitting place to be considering we just finished our our study in Revelation where we talked a lot about the second coming of Jesus. Our, Our hearts and our minds should already be on what that's going to be like, what that's going to look like, and so we study now the first coming of Jesus to prepare our hearts for the second coming. We're going to start by reminding ourselves why Jesus came. Why did the King come? Why did He leave the glories of heaven and come down to earth and dwell among us? We'll open your Bible to Genesis 3, page 4 or so in your pew Bible, and we're going to see the answer to that. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to on the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read the first 19 verses. Now, the serpent was more cunning than any animal of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God really said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees, of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said you shall not eat it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you certainly will not die. For God knows that on the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will become like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took some of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband with her, and he ate. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves waist coverings. Now they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me some of the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Then the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you more than all the livestock and more than any animal of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will make enemies of you and the woman and of your offspring and her descendant. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain at childbirth. In pain, you shall deliver children and your desire will be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Then Adam, then to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree, which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. With hard labor you shall eat from it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles. It shall grow for you. You shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread until you return to the ground, because from it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. title of the message is Why Jesus Came. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome, worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. Guide us today as we look at your word. Help us to... Have ears to hear what You're going to say to us. Father, we know Your Word is living and active. We know You're speaking to us today from this. So give us the ears we need to hear and to take from it what we need to take from it. Use this time today to stir our hearts to greater affection and devotion to Jesus as we think about why He came for our sakes. Father, help us to to just let this passage stir us to a greater hatred of sin and of Satan's lies that, that we so easily and often give into. In our lives, fill us with your spirit today and, and let us be, leave here greater, greater devoted to you than we were when we came. Let us have a, a more fervent spirit in our service to you, Father. Use your word and your spirit today to rub off the rough edges of our life and make us better reflections of Jesus to the world around us. Let your word and your spirit be like a fire to burn the junk and the dross out of our lives that, that we could be pure. For Christ, fill me with your spirit and give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. And help me to, to say what you once said this morning. Nothing more and nothing less. Have you away in all of our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he created a man named Adam and a woman named Eve. And he placed them in a garden called Eden where all of their needs were met. They had near perfect communion with God. They had a near perfect relationship with one another. They had a purpose for their lives that was just what they could do and what they were meant to do. And they only had one rule. You're not allowed to eat of the tree in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Things go along for a period of time and they go great. They enjoy one another. They enjoy God. They enjoy their God given purpose in life. And then Satan comes along And he begins to deceive and destroy, which is what he always does. He begins, he comes to Eve and he tempts her to eat part of the fruit from the tree God said they couldn't have. Eve gives in to his temptation. She eats, she takes it, she gives to her husband who also eats. And then everything in all of history goes downhill from there. Sin entered the world through this one act. Death came in because of sin. The death that came in because of sin was both physical and spiritual. Physical death began and happened eventually, but spiritual death happened immediately. Adam and Eve's sin caused them to die spiritually. And at that point, they passed on death, corruption, and physical death to every one of their descendants, including you and I being descendants of Adam and Eve and having inherited their nature, we are, as we sit here today, double sinners. We have inherited a sin nature that makes us rebellious against the rule and the reign of God in our life. But if that weren't enough, we have actively sinned against a holy God. We have done what our God has said not to do. And so we have sinned just as they sinned. We have done exactly As they have done and in doing so, we have brought death and destruction and all manner of bad into our lives as well. But there is hope. Sin is the reason Jesus came. Jesus came to save us from sin. That's what Gerald read in Matthew one. His name shall be called Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sin. This passage gives us three reasons Jesus came to save us from sin. And three reasons Jesus must be the one to save us from sin. Number one, sin can be made to look good. Have you ever watched an infomercial on TV or on the internet? If so, you've seen salespeople point out all the positive benefits this product will bring into your life. While leaving any sort of thing that could be perceived as, as negative out or or perhaps my favorite is some of the medicine commercials right it'll cure this and it'll do that and then at the very last 5 seconds in a in a speed you barely can understand they explain all the bad that'll happen if you possibly take this medication that's the way sin is sin can be presented to us in such a way that all we see is the good all we see is that temporary pleasure that sin does indeed offer us Meanwhile, on the on the backside, Satan is working to hide the negative consequences. He is working to hide the side effects that sin bring into our life. In an effort to, to make sin look good to us, Satan started a pattern here that he continues to follow in our day because it has worked so well through the ages. First, he casts doubts on God's word. Has God really said? Now, they knew God had really said. They they knew that. They heard that. God was with them and said that to them. But he began by casting doubt. Has God really said? Second, he contradicted God's word. God said, if you eat of it, you'll die. Satan said, no. No, you certainly will not die. God was wrong. It's not as bad as what he said. And then thirdly, and, and perhaps Most effectively, he made it seem as though God was keeping them from something good. God actually knows that the day you eat of that, you're going to become like him and you're going to know good and evil. God isn't protecting you. God is keeping you from something that will allow you to live your best life now. Satan convinced Eve God was trying to keep her from something good. And so she took the fruit and she ate Satan painted such a wonderful picture of this sin, this rebellion against God. Eve stopped thinking about what God had said and focused instead on the fruit itself. Convinced that the fruit was probably good for food, it was it was a delight to the eyes, and it was desirable to make one, why she ate of it, and then she gave to her husband who ate as well. Don't we see these same things happening all around us? Today, the Bible is filled with all kind or the world around us is filled with all kinds of things God's word says are wrong, but they still appeal to us. There's still something within us that wants to do what God has said thou shalt not do. And they appeal to us in part because Satan is a master of making sin look good. Satan is a master at making sin look good by trying to deceive us, maybe through our peers And casting doubt on God's Word. Are are you sure the Bible is, is really God's Word? Are you sure if it is God's Word, that's really what it means? I mean, are you certain? I mean, look at the world today. How can you be so sure that's really what God said? We're thousands of years removed from the time of the writing. How can we be sure of that? Sin can be made to look good as Satan, through so-called scholars, contradict God's Word. No matter what sin there is, you can find an article somewhere written by someone who claims to be a Bible scholar saying God would not keep you from enjoying something. If there is something that makes you feel good, there is a way to express your quote unquote love. Then it has to be right. It has to be okay. There is just no way a good God would keep you from something that would bring you such joy. And then sin can be made to look good as Satan through culture tells us God is trying to keep us from something good. This, again, I believe, is ultimately the most effective. I think this is the one that rules the other two. Many of the people I've met in my life, average people, regular people like us, who, who have decided the Bible is not true and God really didn't say that, or they've decided God didn't really mean that and God wouldn't want to keep them from something, it's not through in-depth scholarly study. It's really not what happened. It's not that they've studied it out and they've studied the Hebrew and the Greek and they've looked at the context and they've studied Jewish culture and Aramaic culture and the Greek culture and they've come to this well-thought-out conclusion. Instead, it's something they want to do. And rather than seeing God maybe trying to protect them, what they're seeing is they might miss out on something. Who does God think He is trying to keep me from doing something I feel enjoyable about? And that then begins to determine what is and isn't true in God's Word. That then begins to determine what is right and isn't right in God's Word. That is most commonly the way it happens. It starts there. If Satan can convince anyone. God is keeping them from something good by saying thou shalt not. If they're convinced of that. They will eventually find a reason to contradict God's word. They will eventually find a reason to disbelieve God's word. Because their flesh and their lusts and their desires outrule everything else. Satan. Appeals to Eve in a way that appeals to her her fleshy nature because the the tree itself and the fruit of the tree was good for food. It was delight to the eyes. It was pretty and it was a desirable to make one wise. Now, the explanation of what she saw when she looked at it is important because of a warning we find in Scripture. Love not the world nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life it's not from the Father but of the world. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. That's, that's what we see here. Lust of the flesh, good for food. Lust of the eyes, delight to the eyes. Pride of life, desirable to make one wise. The lust of the flesh has to do with things we can touch, taste, smell, hear, and see. Now, usually when we think of lust of the flesh, we think of sexual things, and certainly that's a part of what's meant here, but it's not the only thing meant. It would include any sort of selfish or greedy craving we have purely to satisfy our physical desires. It would also mean satisfying our physical desires, which are God-given, by the way, in ways contrary to God's will. We have physical desires because God has given them to us. We enjoy those physical desires because God has given us the ability to enjoy things. But God has given us a right and a wrong way to satisfy all of those desires and those pleasures. The lust of the flesh says, I will satisfy my physical desires any way I want. I don't care what God says. I'll do what I want to do. The lust of the eyes has to do with anything we see and then begin to desire. It can refer to seeing and desiring something expressly forbidden by God. It can also be seeing and desiring something that in and of itself isn't bad. Until we become borderline obsessed with it. This can be something sexual or materialistic. It can be a person, a place, or a thing. It can be any number of things. The lust of the eyes uh, is just a... Really, it's a desire for, for more. In, in a lot of ways. This materialistic that we see the... The, the materialism we see, especially at this time of the year, is definitely a part of the lust of the eyes. This, we must have more, better, faster, and everything in my life is geared around getting more, better, and faster. I, I want this thing I've seen and desire. That is the lust of the eyes. The pride of life means at least two things. First, the pride of life is self-centeredness. A person who is given to the pride of life is focused upon themselves and wants other people to notice them. Now this may mean they seek attention through the way they dress, it may mean they seek attention through the way they look, it may mean they seek attention through their position, through their wealth, or through the toys they have, or or any number of things like that. But but they are attempting to do something, to be something, so others will look at them. That's ultimately the goal. The pride of life in this way is to, to do something, to be something, to have something, to dress something, to look something, so that people will go, Woohoo, look at that. They're awesome. That's the pride of life. We want others to see us, acknowledge us, and think, wow, we're great. Also, the pride of life would refer to like arrogance or conceit. An inward attitude of boasting. Inward attitude and outward boasting about something in our lives that we feel makes us better than others. It could be anything. But for whatever reason, because of this in our lives, we're better than others. It makes us feel we're more important than them. We can look down upon them. We can treat them as less than because we're better than. Now how many of us know these sort of things allure us and pull at us constantly? We could be truly devoted disciples of Jesus, sanctified, Spirit-filled and Spirit-led and and every day our culture is assaulting us with these things. And in one way or another, Some of these things appeal to us. Some of these things pull at us. We can see that looks good. Each of us can think of a lust of the flesh, a lust of the eyes, or the pride of life that we are tempted by. The temptation is strong and it pulls hard against us. We are tempted by these things even though we know they're sins because sin can be made To look good. And we are masters at self-justification. Again, the moment we think I want it and God is trying to keep me from something good. At that moment, I will find a reason why God's word has not said that. I will find a reason why God's word did not mean that. I will find a reason why the world is different. Things have changed and I don't have to follow that any longer. We are masters of self-justification. Jesus came to save us from our sins and the sins that look good and feel good and allure us. Secondly, sin has terrible consequences. As we read what Satan told Adam and Eve, we see he wanted them to, to just think about right now. Just look at the fruit. Just think about what it can do for you. Just think about probably how good it would taste and how good it would feel. Think about the instant gratification. But whatever you do, don't think about anything beyond right now. Don't think about what's going to happen when God comes walking in the cool of the day as he does. Don't think about what happens when you violate what God has said thou shalt not do. Satan didn't tell them about the consequences. Satan was aware. Satan, he was the first sinner. He knew what it was to rebel against God. He knew the consequences of rebelling against God. But he didn't pass that information along. He kept that to himself. He didn't want them to make a good and a solid decision. Because the reality is sin has consequences. And he won't tell us that either. He'll point out how good it is. How much pleasure it will be how much everyone will like it or whatever else that makes it appeal to us in whatever way he does. But he's going to hide as much as he can the consequences. Thankfully, we have God's word which revealed to us many of the consequences. First, we see sin brings shame. Soon as they ate, the eyes of verse 7, the eyes of them were both opened. They knew they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and they covered themselves. Now, the reason that speaks to shame is look at chapter 2 and verse 25. The man and his wife were both naked, but they were not ashamed. They eat and now suddenly they're naked and they're ashamed and they try to cover their sin. Hide it from God. Hide it from one another. Shame is a feeling of guilt and humiliation that comes from sin or failure. Guilt, or Guilt This shame can hinder our relationship with God or our relationship with others. Again, before they were... Before they sinned, they were naked and they were unashamed. But as soon as they sinned, they sought to cover their nakedness. This is a picture of before they sinned, there was nothing to hide. After they sinned, they began to try to hide shameful secrets. Shame makes us try to cover up our sin and failure so no one, even God, will know. Shame makes us delete our Internet history so no one can see what we've been looking at. Shame makes us work extra hard to look godly on the outside so no one will know what we're really like on the inside. Shame will make us try to cover our sin and then hide from God and others so we don't have to deal with what's really going on in our lives. Shame always in some way tries to make us cover and hide and be away so people can't see who we truly are. Sin separates us from God. In verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day and they they hid From the Lord at this moment. Now, I I think the implication of this passage is this was what God always did. This wasn't the first time God came walking in the cool of the day, so they were startled by it. I think the implication is they lived with God like this. This was a regular habit of God coming to them, being with them, and they were naked and unashamed before God as well. But now they have done what God has said not to do, and now they're hiding from God. They're trying to, to separate themselves from God. Their sin... Had separated themselves from God, um, their communion with God was hindered, was broken, their relationship with God was broken all because of their sin. Sin always <clears throat> hinders our relationship with God. God's word in First John chapter one tells us God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Light represents purity and holiness, while darkness represents sin same passage goes on to say that while that we cannot walk with God and walk in darkness at the same time, God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. In fact, John will say we are lying and we do not practice the truth if we walk in darkness and say we have a relationship with God. The reality is you and I, we cannot live a sinful life of rebellion against God and in any sort of a relationship with God at the same time. God's word over and over and over again presents it as an either or passage. Either we walk in the light with God or we walk in the darkness away from God. But we cannot walk in the light and the darkness at the same time. We have to choose. And if we choose to walk in the darkness, then we choose to separate ourselves from God. Sin has earthly consequences. Verse 16. To the woman I will multiply the pain of your childbirth. To the man in verse 17, because he's listened and because he's sinned, the ground is cursed. And it would be hard, that point, for him to grow things. It would make everything that they did difficult from that point on. And it's interesting because it would make everything difficult, right? I think the implication here is childbirth wouldn't have been painful prior to this. But now there's these earthly consequences because of sin, the, her desire would be for her husband, he would rule over her, given the fact that, that previously when God called them on the carpet, Adam said the woman and the woman said the serpent. I think there's now tension that wasn't exist before. So their marriage would now be difficult because of sin. It would be hard to to labor. They would always have to work. Work was a part of life prior to the fall, but now the work would be hard. It would be labor. It would cause the sweat of the brow and it would be difficult. Basically, and then they would die. And they would—they came from the ground. They would return to the ground. They would die. None of that had ever happened before. All of this hard, all of this bad, came because of sin. The reality is, sin just makes our lives hard. Sin always has earthly consequences. God's word says, "We reap what we sow." Galatians seven or six, seven and eight. Everyone reaps a harvest. According to Galatians six, seven and eight, we. We either reap a harvest of blessings from the spirit or we reap a harvest of destruction from the flesh. What determines what we harvest depends on what we sow. If we sow to the flesh, we will reap from the flesh. If we live in sin, there will be earthly consequences for our sin. Our sin will always make our lives on earth far more difficult than God intends for it to be. There are always negative, earthly, disastrous, destructive consequences because of our sin. Sin has expanding consequences. Notice Adam and Eve's sin wasn't just going to affect them. Eve's childbirth was going to be difficult. But then from that point on, every other woman would have painful and difficult childbirth as well. Even her husband would have strife in their marriage. But every other husband and wife would also have strife in their marriage. The ground would be hard for Adam to till and to raise and to scrape a living out of. And it would be hard for everyone else to scrape a living out of as well. Adam and Eve would die and everyone else would die as well. Sin never just affects us. It's important for us to understand. Because anyone I've ever talked to that wants to, they know what the Bible says. They know about how they're supposed to live and they want to live a sinful life. One of the things they'll always say is, well, my sin, it only affects me. But that's simply not true. It's not true from God's word. And it's not true from our life experience. From God's Word, we see that Adam and Eve's sin has affected all of humanity. From God's Word, we, we see in David with Bathsheba. We don't have time to do a deep dive on David and Bathsheba, but take some time. Read 2 Samuel 11-13. through 13. Ask yourself, how many people were affected because David sinned with Bathsheba? Take some time and, and study about Achan from Joshua 7 and ask yourself, how many people died because of what Achan had done. Right. So in God's word, our sin always affects others. But it's not just the Bible that says that life testifies of that as well. How many children were born addicted to drugs or alcohol this year? Because the mother drank or did drugs during the pregnancy. How many children were born with AIDS this year? Because of the sins of the mother and the father. How many people did drunk drivers kill or maim or destroy this year? In every one of these situations, someone else is affected because of the sin of another. Our sin always affects other people. Always. And then lastly, sin has eternal consequences. Verse 23. They were banished from the garden. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. And he drove the man out in the east And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the tree of life. They were banished from the Garden of Eden. This is paradise lost. What we saw in Revelation towards the end is paradise regained. Sin brought not just physical death, but it brought spiritual death. Because the wages of sin is death. Not just die physically, but eternal death. Being cast in the lake of fire for all eternity. If we had time, we could look at 1 Corinthians 6, Galatians 5. And we could see these passages give long lists of sins. And at the end, say something along the lines of, Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. In the plain reading of those passages means those who live in those kind of lives will not go to heaven. Not only can we not live in sin and live with God in this life, we cannot live in sin in this life and then go to be with God in the next life. If we choose sin now, we choose eternity apart from Him in the world to come. God has not changed His M.O., Satan has not changed his M.O. God still allows sin to bring these consequences into our life and the eternal ones. Satan still wants you to think about how much fun the sin is and how much you're going to enjoy it and all of the good things it's going to do for your life. He doesn't want you to think about any of these consequences. He doesn't want you to think about anything negative. Don't think about the future. Don't think about 20 minutes from now how you're going to feel. Don't think about the shame or anything else. Just think about right now. Don't think about the shame you'll feel later. Don't think about what this sin is going to do to your relationship with Jesus. Don't think about the consequences these actions are going to have on your life or your family or anyone else. Focus instead on your instant gratification, not the long-term consequences of your sin. Satan wants us to believe there is no shame for our sin, but God's word declares there is. Satan wants us to believe our sin has no impact on our relationship with Jesus, but God's word says it does. Satan wants us to believe there are no lasting consequences for our actions, but God's word says otherwise. Jesus tells us Satan is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus says Satan comes to steal, to kill And destroy. Always. Sin brings shame. It always has. And it always will. Sin ruptures your relationship with God. It always has. And it always will. Sin has terrible consequences. It always has. And it always will. Jesus came to save us. From the terrible consequences of sin. And then finally, sin requires a savior. Verse 14 and 15. God tells, he speaks to the serpent. He's cursed. It's going to crawl in his belly. And then he says, verse 15, I will make enemies of you and the woman and of your offspring and her descendant. He, the descendant of the woman, would bruise or crush the serpent's head and the serpent would bruise him. On the heel. In the middle of their act of disobedience, God has this conversation with the devil where he tells him something. Satan desperately wants to keep the world from knowing. It's the first promise of a savior who will come. God is telling Satan one day a savior would come to earth, and he would crush Satan's head, and he would destroy all the works of Of the devil. And he would undo all Satan was trying to do. Advent season testifies that Savior is Jesus. See, Satan wants us to live in sin. Satan wants us to think sin looks good and is good. Satan wants us to be separated from God. Satan wants us to suffer the consequences for our sins. Satan wants us to feel hopeless. Hopelessly separated from God, hopelessly trapped in our sins, hopelessly trapped in the consequences of our sins, hopeless to do anything but spend eternity with him. But the consistent thing about liars is they lie and Satan is no different. So long as Jesus reigns, there is hope. Jesus is the Savior who came to save us. From our sin. Jesus can do for us. What no one else. Even we cannot do for ourselves. He can save us. From our sins. He can forgive us. For our sins. He can free us from the shame. And the guilt of our sins. He can restore us. To the kind of relationship. We were meant to have with God. All along. Jesus can do this. And no one else can. Because of who he is. And what he's done. He's done. Jesus is not just a good man. Jesus was not just a teacher or a prophet or a religious leader or a miracle worker. He was all of those things, but he is more than that. In John chapter 12, we're reminded of Isaiah's vision in Isaiah 6, where he sees God in all of his glory. And in John chapter 6, we're told that is Jesus. We're told in the Gospel of John, Colossians and Hebrews, Jesus is the one who created all things. So Jesus, the great and the glorious God of the Bible, the great and glorious creator of all things, he willingly cast off his glory and he came to earth and he lived as a human. He lived a perfect and a sinless life. He never violated God's commands, either the spirit of the law or the letter of the law. He did exactly what God wanted him to do every moment of every day of his life. He did amazing miracles. He taught in ways that astounded everyone from great theologians to the common people. And then after about 33 years of life, he was betrayed by one of his disciples and murdered on a Roman cross. But the death on the cross wasn't a surprise. It didn't catch him off guard. This is why He came. Jesus did not come just to live a perfect life. Jesus did not come just to set a great example. Jesus did not come just to give us good teachings. Jesus did not come just to do impressive miracles. He came for the explicit purpose of dying for your sin and mine. And as He was nailed to the cross, all of God's wrath against all of our sin was poured out upon Him. And after taking all of God's wrath against all of our sin and paying the penalty our sins deserved, Jesus died and He was laid in a tomb for three days. After three days, He rose victorious over sin, over death, and over the grave. And now because of His sinless life, His sacrificial death, and His victorious resurrection, we are able to be completely forgiven for our sins and have the hope of eternal life. This is what Jesus came to do. He is the only one who can do this. You and I have sinned like Adam and Eve did. And our sin guarantees we cannot undo it. We cannot turn over a new leaf and be good enough to undo the sin of our past. Even if we set out from this moment on and never did anything wrong again, We would still be condemned because of the sin of our past. Only Jesus can pay the penalty our sins deserve. Only Jesus can reconcile us to God. Only Jesus can bring us to the place where we ought to be. This is what He came to do. This is what He desires for all of us. I love in this passage, God comes down, the man and the woman hide. And God calls to them. Where are you? I love that. Because see, God didn't wait for them to come and seek Him. Because they wouldn't have. Sinners always hide from God. They never seek the Lord. If God was waiting on us to come to Him, God would wait until we died and we would have never seeked Him. God instead sought them. Where are you? He knew he he was calling to them, though, to come out of their hiding and and come to him in the same way. God is calling to us in here today. God is calling and he's saying, where are you? Quit hiding and come to me. Notice God forgave them. God made a sacrifice for them. God covered their sin. That's what he wants to do for us today. Today, God isn't saying, hey, just sit there, and when you get around to it, then you can come to me. Instead, God is seeking you. People never seek God. Any desire we ever have for God is only a response to His desire for us first. He is always the one who initiates contact. He is always the one who calls out to us. He is always the one saying, come to me. So today, we all have a decision before us. What are we going to do? Because even even if you say, well, I'm saved, I don't have to answer that call. You do. Because there's always more. There's always more of God. There's always more of the Spirit. There's always more of Jesus. Ephesians talks about being filled with all the fullness of God. Me. can, could you say with absolute honesty, you live your life filled with all the fullness of God? Man, I don't think I could. Well, I don't think I could. I know I couldn't say that. So he's calling to me. Where are you? Come for more. He's calling to you. Where are you? Come for more. And then if you've never turned to Jesus, You've never been saved. Or if you've slidden back in your relationship with him, he's calling to you. Where are you? Come to me. So all of us today have to decide. Are we going to answer this call? Are we going to go to the God who is calling us through the Savior who has died for us and receive what he has for us? Or are we going to stay where we are and stay like we are? To go to Jesus requires repentance on our part. Requires us to have a change of mind. But God and sin results in a change of life. Repentance is realizing God is right. And I am wrong. God is right about my sin. God is right about my unrighteousness. God is right about my guilt and my condemnation. And I am wrong. I am not good enough. I am not strong enough. I am not okay as I am. That that change of mind leads us to turn from sin and turn to Jesus. Now that turning is important. For there's no repentance without turning. If I'm supposed to be walking to the cross... And I'm walking this way. I'm not walking to the cross. And I can't say, well, I'm, yeah, I'm going to the cross. I'm going to go up there and grab the cross. Yeah, I'm going to the cross. Am I? No. No, I change my mind, I'm going to go to the cross. What do I have to do? I have to turn around and begin to walk towards the cross. In a similar way, I, I can't go the way I've always lived in my life and do the things I've always done where I've not pursued Jesus and suddenly start pursuing Jesus. There has to be a a repentance, a turn, a renouncing of the former way of life so that I can embrace the new way of life. And repentance is motivated by our belief in Jesus. But belief in Jesus is more than belief in God. There are people in hell who believed in God. There are people who will die and go to hell who believed in God. Believing there is a God does not save. The devils believe and have enough sense to tremble. But they will be cast in the lake of fire. They will be tormented for all of eternity. Faith in Jesus is trusting that what he did is the only hope I have. Trusting in belief in Jesus is saying, I cannot save myself. I cannot help in my salvation. Jesus alone must save me. Faith in Jesus says the only thing I contribute to my salvation is the sin which makes the salvation necessary. If we think I'm going to do it, Jesus will help, but I'll carry the bulk of the load. We're not saved. If we think our moral goodness has added to our salvation, we're not saved. Salvation requires us to let go of self-righteousness, self-sufficiency, and say only Jesus can save me. And then to cry out, Jesus, save me. That is the response to the God who calls That is the saving response from we see in God's word. Anything else, anything else leaves us lost in sin. Anything else leaves us walking in darkness. This Advent season, as we think about the the first coming of Jesus in light of the glory of the second coming of Jesus main way to ensure we think on Jesus during this time is by repenting of our sins, believing in Jesus and being saved by him. By hearing the call and moving deeper into God, growing more and more like Jesus. This is the call that goes out today. What is your response going to be? Because, man, this is the hardest part. For many to believe. For many to accept, I guess. Everyone's response is individual. No one can respond for you. No one can repent for you. No one can believe for you. No one can respond for me. No one can repent for me. And no one can believe for me. It's my decision. It's your decision. So this morning. The question is what am I going to do about the call of God calling me to Jesus? I want to